Welcome to the Banded About podcast series. Today I will be chatting to the Adelaide drummer whose original band has had the most views on my YouTube channel and that same video is in the top five of most watched videos on my Banded About Facebook page. The band that I'm referring to is Iron Horse and my guest is John Yacko. Welcome, John, and thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. How are you, Di? Glad to be with you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, John, let's start with you telling us where you were born. I was actually, I was born in Gawler, South Australia. Lovely. And is that where you um, grew up and spent most of your childhood? I did, yes. Grew up in Gawler and um, the Adelaide northern suburbs and, yeah, certainly did. Wonderful. Went to school here in Gawler. Do either of your parents have a musical background or anyone else in the family? Um, not really, but uh, my brother played guitar and he certainly uh, got me interested in music and the drums, mm. but the family was like our culture was very musically orientated. In other words, uh, the get-togethers always had live music. So when, and I as a kid growing up, I do remember there was always seemed to be a get-together at someone's house, relatives, what have you, and someone would be playing uh, guitar, mouth organ, mandolin. Uh, No-one played drums, funnily enough, but, uh, yeah, so I come from an Italian background, so there was a lot of music in that sense. Yeah. But um, nobody actually really pursued it uh, as a career, which I did, And, and my brother did get me into the drums of sort. I mean, I I did enjoy the drums, listening to them, and, and we've got to blame the Beatles. I can actually still remember hearing the Beatles and uh, uh, just sort of being interested in the drums and then trying to have a go. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if you want me to talk about that now sure, or how yeah, I got yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um So, yeah, basically from that, I can remember... My cousin, who was about a year or two younger than me, coming into our primary school class, and he was imitating um, uh, John Lennon, I think, uh, with a with a guitar, mm. and and I thought, oh, okay, so he, he's going to be a musician. I'm going to be one too, then. So <laughs> so I got stuck into the drums and um, just with bits of sticks and stuff because there was no drum kit at our place. And then my dad realised that, you know, I was just banging things. I actually used, I found that forks had really, I didn't know anything about rebound, but they felt good to me and that's because they had a bit of a natural rebound Mm. on the props. And I played on um, old pots and pans, plastic buckets, anything I could get hold of. And so my dad ended up uh, making some sticks for me and also my very first drum he made out of a... uh, I think it's a 20 litre now in the new terms, still paint bucket, which he covered in goat skins top and bottom. And um, he did it with the, uh, the this cord so that I could t- kind of tune. It was very primitive, but it was just amazing. Uh, and I should have kept that drum. I had it for many, many years. Yeah. And I 
really have had it to date, but you know, I've moved so many times that it's it eventually got lost. And um, But that's how I got into it. And then my brother, uh, who was, it, see, in those days, kids got marched into school on the snare drum and bass drum. So you had the big bass drum and someone played that and someone played the, the marching drum or snare drum. And my brother had learned some marching beats, so he taught those to me, and I just really loved it and mm. sort of got into those. And, and I was actually the youngest kid at our school playing the snare drum, so as soon as I went to school, I already knew the marching beats. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. But sadly, my dad offered to send me to drum lessons at the age of about eight, and I don't know why, but I said, no, nah, I don't really want to go. And, and then I just... I just didn't do it anymore. I sort of banged around a bit um, on that old drum, but I didn't really get into it seriously, but I loved music. That's one thing I did. I was always playing my brother, older brothers and sisters' records and I just loved music. And um, I actually really didn't get into drums until I was uh, nearly 19. So yeah. I actually end became a late starter mm. and... Um, I ended up. It's funny. Do you want to? Do you want to know the whole story of how I do, it started? I do. Yes. <laughs> so I'm so I'm pumping petrol at a petrol station in Gawler, and this guy used to come in on a regular basis to get petrol. And I got to sort of know him, and he was a musician. He was a bass player. And one day he said to me, "You don't know any drummers, do you? Because we've lost our drummer. We're looking for a drummer." And I've always been adventurous, and I said, "Oh, I can play a bit of drums." And he said, well, if you want to come to practice, you know, and anyhow, we exchanged the details and uh, he left and, of course, then on there, hmm, okay, I don't have a drum kit mm. and can I really play drums? Anyhow, so I, I had a mate that had a drum kit. I borrowed his drum kit. I went to the rehearsal. I set it up. I set it up right-handed and I was a fully blown left-hander. Mm. Um, everything I do in life is all the other, the wrong way around. And... Um, I couldn't really, you know, I was, I was embarrassing myself big time. Mm. And then, um, one of the guys said, you keep leading with your left. Are you a left-hander by any chance? I said, yes, I am. He says, well, swap your drum kit around, mate, you know. Mm. And he must have known, this is one of the guitarists or something, he must have known about these things. So we swapped the drum kit around. All of a sudden I could sort of do it. I could sort of hold a bit of a groove for him. I wasn't very good, I've got to tell you. Mm. I was pretty bad, actually. But they said to me, we'll give you one month, and if you can improve in a month, you can have the, you know, we'll keep you. And so that was the inspiration. So I went off and uh, found a drum teacher here in Gawler, and uh, he got me going. Uh, Larry Tidswell, his name was. Mm. And, uh, and you know, sometimes, you know, so I, 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 it's probably not really the right term to use, but I'll use a very uh, carefully backyard drum teacher, okay, by that meaning that these guys have had no formal training or anything like that and they're just passing on what they know. But what Larry did for me was he made me really pay attention to the detail in the beats that he's making me learn and and he I can remember after I got going a bit, oh, by the way, I got the job. I, I, I practised and practised and practised and I... I made the grade and the band kept me. And okay. um, But in the meantime, I'm really getting into the drum kit. And um, Larry, I always remember, he made me learn 
the free song um, All Right Now. Oh, sorry, no, it was Wishing Well. Yeah. And um, so I sort of kind of got that groove and that, but I kept missing a couple of really interesting bits uh, as they went from the chorus to the ver- back into the verse. There's quite a little neat little drum pass that, um, uh, oh, I should know his name, it'll come to me, uh, that, that he did, and I kept missing it because I didn't pay attention to it. And Larry really picked me up on that and he said, look, you know, that is the best part of the song. Mm. He says, that little bit is the bit, and he says, that, they're the bits you need to focus on, not just the drum um, grooves or, you know, the rolls that stick out. It's, it's these little bits. So from very uh, early beginning he got me to listen and really listen carefully and it didn't stop there. So uh, basically I, I realised that I re- really needed to get uh, some better training with all due respect to Larry because he was a great drummer. So I ended up going to John Reynolds' uh, music because that was the music and drum place in the day. Yeah. We're talking very late 70s here, so it's probably around about 78, 79. And, you know, I just turned up and said I want drum lessons and uh, John said, well, that's great. We've got we've just got this new teacher's just come in um, from overseas and he's actually got some vacancies and his name was Jim Bailey. Mm-hmm. And little did I know that I just lucked on one of the best drum tutors in this state. He'd just come back from studying in America and uh, he ended up running the uh, university uh course, uh, music course mm. and drum and specialising in the percussion side. So he's a fantastic um, drummer. But anyhow, he – I only really went – I think I had about nine months' worth of lessons with him because um, I was, I'm was i an easily distracted person mm. and I got distracted by motorbikes and cars. And But, look, in that nine months he saved me years of – uh, practice, also, you know, years of training, I think, because he taught me some really important stuff, mostly about uh, relaxation and stick control. Mm. And those things went on to be my saving grace, and I'll explain them a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And, and then as I went off, you know, still really interested, always interested in music, I couldn't let go of the music thing, you know. I couldn't help but listen to great music and... Um, I would go and watch bands and always say, oh, I should get back into the drums, should get back into the drums. And um, and then eventually I, I was riding my motorbike back from Queensland and uh, I had plenty of time to think and uh, I made a decision there and then that I'm going to do it seriously. I'm going to actually just really get into this, the drums and uh, get into a decent band if I can yeah. and go for it. So uh, when I got back... I got myself my own decent uh, drum kit, which was a Brisbane-made drum kit called a Druin, and they're actually quite collectible now if anyone's got one. Mm. And the mistake I made was selling that, of course. <laughs> you know, I'm still only 19 and, you know, I haven't really learned much about these things yet. And uh, But I also bumped into a guy just purely by accident that lived out at uh, Lindock who was uh, right into big band drumming 
and he did do quite a lot of big band drumming and he was a massive fan of the Warren Daly Wilson big band. Mm-hmm. So I spend quite a lot of nights out at his place and he was he was a left-hander, which was uncanny because left-handed drummers are pretty rare. Yeah, they today. are. Yeah. yeah this, they're out there, but we're, we're, we're a rare breed, mostly because um, they get changed over. But And I'll tell you a little story about that in a second. But... Um, so his name was Dale Cox, this drummer, and he was a fantastic drummer, but he's also a little bit eccentric, and um, he wouldn't actually let me play. He would make me sit, listen, and, and always, and I can never forget it, he's go, listen, look, watch, watch me, look, and listen, and, he, and listen was always the big word. And he would be playing all this you know, big band music and, and doing the bits and everything, and then he'd stop and go over it and I would say, look, can you just go back and do that bit there? I really, like, it was really pretty impressive drumming, but it got me hooked on it. So as much as I became really involved in rock drumming, I always had this other side to me that always wanted to explore. I didn't get into jazz, um, I've got to say that, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I like jazz. I didn't actually get into trying jazz drumming. I did a little bit, just a bit, as most people would have a go at. But I really did have a crack at big band drumming, which was heavily influenced by the jazz style anyhow. Yeah. And um, so uh, so that was sort of my – so here's three people now, uh, Larry, uh, Jim and Dale that, all taught me some really important stuff and um, and Dale was totally, um, he had no formal training whatsoever but he had a fantastic gear. He couldn't read a bar of music and no, didn't even know, didn't even know one rudiment. I was teaching him rudiments mm. in the end because I was getting them taught by the likes of Jim Bailey and, uh, and then um, another guy called Wayne Bowman who I'll talk about. Um, so... Um, but Dale's just had the knack. He could pick it up and, and play it, working it out. And, and he said he worked it all out by spending uh, hours watching drummers standing on the side of the stages in the 60s, um, just watching all the drummers, and that's how he sort of learned how to do things and obviously asking questions. After I made that decision about getting into drums seriously, I thought, okay, I need to, be, I need to go and get some training again. And again, I was really lucky that I, I there was a music teacher out at the Elizabeth TAFE, and he was specialising in drums and percussion. And he happened to be uh, a, a percussionist with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, and his name was Wayne Bowman. Mm. And so he comes the fourth very important person in my drumming upbringing. And he, um, getting back to this left right handed business, when I first went to him, oh, and by the way, I just nearly missed it. So Iron Horse had just started, so I, I bumped into them, and, and perhaps I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But so we, I had just gone into Iron Horse, and we uh, got together, and we. By the time I got to Wayne Bowman, and that's probably what actually inspired me to actually go and get some more lessons. Um, uh, we had a gig coming up, basically. So by the time I get to Wayne Bowman, I've got a gig in the wind, uh, our first gig. And so I go to Wayne Bowman, he asks all the general questions, and then 
I said to him, look, I'm actually a left-hander. And he goes, oh, well, that's all right. We'll flick you around. We'll, um, we'll just teach you right-handed because it's pointless being left-handed out there because, you know, everything's set up right-handed. And I said, oh, okay, all right. So I started, I actually did that lesson as, uh, you know, in the right-handed fashion. Mm. And then I went back the next lesson and, um, I, you know, sort of started the lesson. I said, look, um, I had a bit of a go at playing right-handed and I was really clunky. I said, I've got a gig coming up in a week. What do I do? And he goes, oh, he's there. All right. He's there. Okay. We'll keep you left. So so then he had to, because a lot of the drum parts and rudiments and what have you, uh, well, you know, a lot of them ambidextrous, but a lot of them actually kick off in a written right-handed way. So we had to rewrite a lot of stuff mm. uh, for myself. But, you know, I abandoned that years later. I just, I now just pick up rudiments or drum parts that obviously are written right-handed and I just play them that way. Mm. It doesn't sort of matter anymore. But um, it's probably got me confused though. I don't know. But anyhow, <laughs> um, left-handers I know do have a bit of a distinct way of leading off the drum kit and, um, you know, there's a lot of them out there that uh, was well, not, sorry, not a lot, but there's a, Few good names out there, like Ian Pace is one that comes to mind. There's there's a few others, but I always keep forgetting them, and I don't want to say their names in case I'm wrong. Yeah. But, but Ian Pace is definitely one of my influences. That was a left-hander, and I was sort of found his style of drumming reasonably natural. But anyhow, back to the um, so Wayne Bowman's style of teaching was quite different to. Uh, Larry's or um, Jim Bailey's, where they got me working on the kit. I was with Wayne Bowman for 12 months. We didn't touch a drum kit. It was all stick control, uh, relaxation exercises and rudiments and uh, drum passages. A lot of marching stuff, which I really loved, which mm. went right back to my beginnings. And... Um, so that was quite interesting, and but I was getting my drum kit stuff from, you know, playing with the band and listening to records and playing along with. Them. That's how I learned. I will most of my records, which I still got today, are scratched to buggery basically because mm. I kept, you know, stopping, putting my finger on it, slowing it down, lifting the needle up, putting it back down, the kick going over bits and pieces. That's how we learn. Yeah, because there wasn't any YouTube back then. <laughs> no YouTube. I mean, man, you know, <laughs> you can just go in there and Google whatever you want and there'll be ten people showing you how to play it. Yep. And um, in, back in our day, you just tried to learn the best you could. And sometimes you would ask a drummer if you, if you were, you know, if you weren't embarrassed Sometimes there was this embarrassment factor that you thought, well, I'm supposed to know that. I better not ask about it. But, um, and I couldn't, Dale was, Dale Cox, I mean, he's still in my life now and uh, uh, he's still drumming. He's quite old now, but he's still going, drumming. He doesn't drum live, he just drums in his room. And I can ask him a lot about his style of music, but he doesn't really, it's funny, he never really understood or, uh, played our style of music, in other words, for sort of straight-ahead rock. Mm. Um, 
because it was a little bit alien for him. He was so used to playing in his style. But um, anyhow, so there's there's the sort of there's the formal teaching, and um, and if I skip many many years, I the only other teaching I had uh, for drums was I caught up with. Um, Mark Myers, who you probably know and yes. know of. Yes, and I've interviewed Mark, yeah. Yeah, well, he's a fantastic drummer and I I had some time uh, on my hands and I, I caught up with him for about six months and he opened some real doors. So, you know, you go through your drumming career and you know there's some there's some bits that you just, it's just, you know there's something there but you're just not sure how it's all going on, you know, and, mm. And Mark solved that puzzle for me. And it was something I was doing but never really understood the importance of. And, um, yeah, and I get a lot, there were a lot, a lot of little things that he cleared up for me, which are fantastic. Just gave me some basic exercises and parts and bits and pieces to focus on and grooves that then just really opened up the doors that I needed. And it's funny because that didn't happen until about, gee, I reckon that was about eight years ago. So, you know, it was quite like in, in my drumming life, you know. Mm. But, um, yeah, so that's the training side of it. Um, maybe maybe what I'll do is I will just give a little brief on Iron Horse if I can now. I'll get that yeah, done and then we'll go on to that. Yeah, about your first gig with them? Yeah, so basically... I'll tell you how Iron Horse started. I knew David Stone, who was the guitarist, one of the guitarist singers, because we had two main singers, Sean and Dave. And um, and I had been going to – there was a music shop in, in Salisbury called Paramusic. So some of you people out there would probably relate to Paramusic and would know of it back in the 80s. And we used to get there on a Thursday night and then there'd be quite – quite a few jam sessions going on, so we would jam in the music shop after the doors closed. And I met a couple of guys, uh, a guitarist, Sean Pilkington, and a bass player, Brett Han. And I said to them, um, hey, you know, I've got a mate. Would you be interested in the jam? And the, my mate was David Stone. Mm. He's a guitarist singer. And we did. We had a jam at uh, Brett's place, actually, and I had jammed with so many bands by this stage and I think I'd tried to get involved in about eight or nine bands and for one reason or another they all fell apart and it was because the guitarist didn't show up or the bass player lost interest or the singer. I was always there because as drummers will vouch, we're always there. It's always hanging out to play with somebody. Yeah. Um, it's just the nature of the drum kit. Uh, it doesn't sort of make sense. Uh, or it does on its own, but it always makes a lot better sense uh, once you've got musicians around you. But mm. anyhow, um, we got this jam organised and I'd been to so many jams where, you know, does anyone know this song? Yeah, and you knew a third of it and, you know, then it falls apart. And, and then, you, end, you know, you try a few songs and nothing really gels and, and everyone ends up just jamming the blues, you know, because everyone knows how a blues song goes. Yep. Um, but this night we, we get together, first time all four of us are in this one room together and someone rattles off a song, oh, yeah, yeah, and we played it from start to go and then another one, start to go, start to go. Anyhow, at the end of that, the whole session, there wasn't a lot of talking going on. 
at the end of it, while we're pa- packing up, and this is no word of a lie, it was like pure silence. And it was like we either all hated each other or something else was going on. And what was going on, everyone was churning over in their head the fact that there was a band there that night, you know? Yeah. yeah. We, didn't, we didn't pull it together. You know, we'd miss out. So I eventually just broke the silence and said, look, I don't know what you guys thought, but tonight something really different happened to you and, and if we don't form this as a, a solid outfit and march on, you know, I think we're all going to regret this. And uh, everyone agreed. Mm. Uh, all thinking the same thing and that and so became Iron Horse. And um, our very first gig uh, was at the Para field Parafield Gardens High School where Brett was a, still a student. He was only 15 mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, he was quite young compared to the rest of us because the rest of us were in our early 20s. Do you remember and, what year that was? No, it would have to have been 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, first gig was 1980 July or might have been August, sorry, August or July. And But our very first official gig as uh, Iron Horse was September 20th, 1980, at the Tanunda Show Hall where we played with uh, about four other bands. Mm. And that was a wonderful night. And from there we just got going and played all over the place. Now I've just realised that I was at your very first gig because I was at Parafield Gardens High School in 1980 and I oh. remember Iron Horse. <laughs> right, that was, uh, it was a lunchtime concert. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, there you go. So it's a small world. It um, is. Yeah. Um, well, look, you know, I mean, you could, you know, I could be here for hours talking about honest, but just really briefly, one thing that we did right from the word go is we, we really formalised not the music but the business structure. So we formed a little business. We got books. Uh, we kept a record of every cent that came in. We set plans and goals. Everybody, we had a book which we called the Blue Book. Don't ask me why that was. I think because I, I better not say where I worked, but I worked for a place where I had access to stationery and I got, I got everybody a book, a blue exercise book. And in that exercise book, everyone had to write what next week's practice was going to be, what songs we had to know, what needed, what you needed to have organised before next week's practice. So that was like our diary. Mm-hmm. And we always joked about the blue books because we had them for about a year or two. And so, and I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure that that attributed to the success of Iron Horse. We always had goals and achievements that we needed to work towards and that kept us all interested. And as we progressed, we were all growing up together really as musicians we weren't very good, I'll tell you now. We weren't real good, but we grew and learnt together and um, and eventually we must have got to a point where people thought we were okay because they kept coming back to our gigs. And um, how we – look, we tried to get shows in Adelaide as Iron Horse and no one would take us because we were unknown and, and what have you. But one venue did take us. And I'm not sure how much to say about this, but in the early 80s um, there was a hotel in Hind Street called the Overway Hotel mm-hmm. and no one really wanted to play there. And when I, and, and they put an ad in the, 
in the uh, paper saying they needed a bands to play at this pub. Mm. When I rang up, the guy, he's, he's quite excited that I even rang up. I didn't know anything about the Overway Hotel. And then he turned around and he said to me, he said, look, it's a bit of a rough pub. Um, yeah. And I just replied to him and said, oh, it doesn't bother me. You know, we've played played for bikies and that and I'm not worried about rough. So we went and played the Overway Hotel, which is our first gig in Adelaide. And it was an eye-opener. And um, when the lady asked us if we wanted to come back, I said to her, I'll, I'll let you know because we weren't sure whether we wanted to go back. But because <laughs> we just bought our PA, first PA, we needed money to come in and we'd got no other gig. So I rang her back and said, yeah, look, we'll come back. And every week she would ask us, uh, you come back, she was, she was sort of Italian and spoke with an accent, you know, you'll come back next week. And um, and every week I would say, I'll let you know, because <laughs> every week we didn't want to go back. But then if we didn't get a gig, we'd go back. And we ended yeah. up playing, we went, we did that for 13 months until eventually we actually did break into Adelaide and uh, didn't need to go back to the uh, Overway anymore. And how did we break into Adelaide? Um, we we supply a place called the Kersbrook Tavern, um, and a lot of people should know where Kersbrook is in, in the Adelaide Hills. Yep. We had quite a following there, and it got to the point where you just half, half – well, most of the time you just couldn't even get into the pub. It was that packed with people. Yeah. had just as many outsiders as we were inside. And someone must have told the central booking agency at the time and the main man at, there was um, Robbie Robinson, who's now with Thebby Theatre, and another guy called Rod Gunner. And someone must have told them about this band playing at the Kerswick Tavern that drew big crowds. They came out to have a look at us. I got a phone call about Monday or Tuesday after the, the gig that they came to see on a weekend and got invited into their offices and basically told me, look, you know, came out to your gig, rah, 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 would you be in some playing the Bridgeway Hotel? Of course we were. That was the yeah. town, you know, <laughs> of course we were. Um, and so we played the Bridgeway Hotel and people came there actually came to see it. So because I didn't realise that a lot of the people were coming to the Kersbrook Town were actually coming down from Tea Tree Gully along the, yeah. the hills roads there. So by the time we got to the bridgeway, we'd had a little bit of a following. So we actually pulled a crowd at the bridgeway and everyone, you know, management and whatever were impressed. And it went from there and from there we, you know, just kept building up the following and, um, yeah, it was quite surprising, really, what happened with Iron Horse. I still, to this day, we scratch our heads over it a bit. Um, but just as a side note, Rod Gunner went on to manage Men at Work, and um, so he left South Australia. Um, we released our first album in 1986. And we sort of had a feeling it would do good, but it really surprised us. It got as high as number five on the commercial radio charts in Adelaide yeah. and went number 54 nationally, which was actually quite an achievement because that was on the Kent Report in the day, which was the 
that was the chart that everyone was judged against. And um, it wasn't easy to even get into the top 100 of that chart. And actually quite some rather big names that went on to do far bigger and better things than Iron Horse didn't actually get as high as number 54 in the Kent Report charts. They did chart in their own cities like Melbourne, just like we did in Adelaide. We charted yeah. of these bands, um, and I won't go into names, did chart on their local charts, but they didn't actually sell enough records to chart in the Kent Report. Uh, by the time I released our first album, we'd played in WA, uh, Victoria, New South Wales and South Australia, obviously, and we sold records all over the place and, and it shot us up into 54. In fact, they actually rang me. I never forget the phone call. And they said, do you guys know? And it's funny, the words were, just like you hear, the words were, do you guys know that you got a an album in the charts, uh, 54 going, oh, no, so it was some lower rate. He says, going up like a bullet, which is, you know, the old terminology. Mm. So I got pretty excited and rang everyone today, told them the news. Anyhow, it, it sort of got to 54 and that was it. But that was, in hindsight, it was quite a, an achievement, and we got told by WEA Records that our album was actually of uh, platinum status, but we were independent. We released it on our own label, on mm. music, which I've still got going today, because no one would take us on. I can tell you a story about Mushroom Records where I was on the phone, Michael Gadiski and his offsider, and his offsider was a female, and I can't remember her name, and we were on speakerphone here in Adelaide, and she said, <laughs> the words were, but they're so ugly. <laughs> oh, oh. Band had all long hair. Well, we were just long-haired, bearded yahoos, basically, and the trend in 1985 was totally the opposite. It was tight leather pants, clean cut, you know, way it's out shirt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, all that sort of stuff. And the music, you know, the music was highly synthesised and, keyboard orientated and wears, you know, raunchy guitars and and they just didn't think it was going to work. And um, but it did work. Um, it did work, yeah. In fact, we were really popular in Melbourne. One of our biggest career mistakes was we actually went and based ourselves in Sydney and tried to work the Sydney market, thinking that we had Adelaide and Melbourne pretty much sewn up because we were quite popular in Melbourne. We were doing really big shows in Melbourne. We actually even played the Festival Hall in Melbourne with Johnny Winter. We were doing shows like that. We would tour with a lot of big national, uh, international acts throughout Victoria. But um, we went to Sydney, and it was a little bit of a mistake because Sydney was really not into the sort of music that we were doing. It worked well in the suburbs. We, we certainly did quite well in the suburbs, but in a city... There were small venues that, you know, we just, it just, we couldn't even relate to it. We were used to playing big stages and, you know, and doing our sort of thing. But so we ended up leaving, got a little bit disillusioned and came back to Adelaide. And then in the end, I think we just got disillusioned with the whole thing and decided to have a little break. And um, we never actually got back together. Well, we did. We got, we came back. We never, we've always remained friends and, and, uh, yeah, and have done a few reunion shows, as you'd know. Yes, yes. This went on to be the Cosmic Storm. Uh, sorry, the Cosmic Desert, 
which then morphed into the Cosmic Storm, and that's that's sort of where we were at. And then um, from my sort of musical career from Cosmic Storm, I eventually uh, formed a duo with uh, Lily out of uh, Cosmic Storm and we formed the duo Lily and the Drum. Take you back a little bit. Do you want to talk yep. about your first major gig? What one that was? The first major gig was Deep Purple at Memorial Drive. Um, if you call it that, I mean, we did do other major gigs like we supported um, other artists like um, Interstate Names and I guess at the time they were major. But if you were to really look at, I guess, the first major highlight, it was obviously being asked to open for Deep Purple at Memorial Drive. Yeah, that's amazing. I was because we we're only four years into our career, and I, and our career was really, like we went, we went from knowing nothing, we were from zero, to touring in three years all over Australia, and then doing shows like, at Memorial Drive, all within four years, I'd been drumming for a whole of about two uh, well, RT and uh, eighty four six years. Mm. Really, I shouldn't have been on that stage. <laughs> really, it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> the drummer came on after me, man. You know, like Ian Pace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have been on that same stage. But anyhow, I got away with it, and um, and it was a blast to watch him so close up because I got to stand side stage, and obviously we got to meet him. And uh, ironically enough, we. Also played with Deep Purple again in Cosmic Storm um, in about, uh, oh, it was not that long ago. So I think it was around about 2010, somewhere around there. So they came to um, Thebe Theatre and we supported them there as well. So that was interesting. Um, the other major gigs after that were obviously working with people like Joe Walsh, Fabulous Thunderbirds, Johnny Winter, Canned Heat. Uh, I forget you. I forget some of the names now. Um, uh, they'll probably come to me. But yeah, so we did have a few uh, highlights in our career for sure. So from On Horse, we we did a, a stint as the Hurricanes, predominantly just playing covers. Though we were still throwing in a few On Horse tunes and a few unreleased. I guess sort of Iron Horse tunes. And, but look, deep down, we all wanted to write again and release and play original music. So that's where we then formed the Cosmic Desert from the band and that Harry. was with James. Yeah, James Birchall. So basically, the lineup was, oh, yeah, um, Brett left Iron Horse after the first three years, I think it was. And uh, Kevin Perks joined the band as the bass mm -hmm. player. Uh, Brett just wanted to pursue a different style of music. We were going down a bit more of the blues rock uh, type of avenue. Brett wanted to pursue a bit more of the gutsier rock uh, sort of avenue, so we parted company. And um, so Kevin's Kevin Perks, now I'm talking Hurricanes, which basically becomes Cosmic Desert, Kevin Perks on bass guitar, Sean Pilkington on guitar and vocals, Peter Beebe on keyboards, James Birchall 
predominantly on vocals, so he did play a bit of acoustic guitar, and myself on drums. And we, for a short period, we also had a guy called Mick Anderson on guitar. He was predominantly in the Hurricanes. He he uh, bowed out of the Cosmic Desert because he was he was sort of suffering the typical musician blues, where the, everyone needed money to keep surviving. And the minute you go into originals, you know the income drops off. It's just the way it is. And yeah. um, but we all made the commitment to do that. And uh, he decided that wasn't going to be for him. So we're part of Mecca Blue. We always were part of Mecca Blue with our musical friends. And um, so there becomes Cosmic Desert. And we released an album which actually had more success in the US than it did here. Um, we got a little bit of airplay here, but, but not much because commercial radio stations were already shutting the doors on grassroots music. Mm. The album was distributed through the college circuit radio radio circuit um, in a, in a North America and actually South America because I got royalty checks from places like Argentina. I actually got royalty checks from India for a while, and I thought, "Wow, this is going to be good." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I only need one hit in India, and, and it was actually a song that I wrote, which was quite interesting, called "Mad Mad." It's a mad wild world, so the Indians must have liked that. And um, so the Cosmic Desert sort of ha- had a short lifespan um, because it's just getting increasingly hard to try and support yourself uh, playing original music in a, and trying to survive. Uh, a lot of yeah. us survived by teaching, teaching music. Um, but in the end, I, get, I, I was pretty much the first guy to pull the pin and said, look, I really can't. I can't keep it up. And I was sort of burning out because I always handled the business side of things as well. So I was always not only doing the music, I was also, I would get involved in recordings because I, I ran a studio for a while and so I was recording our music as well as others. I was rehearsing with a band, playing live uh, and um doing all the business side of it, which, you know, if anyone that gets involved in bookings and the business side of it knows how taxing that can be. Yeah. Also, um, I then had to get a job as well and, and it, was, it was just, you know, all a bit much trying to keep all this going. So I, I sort of bowed out of playing live. I still kept everything else going and kept the business and kept managing the band. But eventually, you know, the band just sort of came to a bit of a halt and we thought, ah, oh, well, you know, We'll go separate ways, and we did. But Kevin and I always stuck together, and we actually just formed another original outfit under the proviso that we wouldn't play very often, but we would release, write and release songs, which we did. So it became Cosmic Storm. It's mm. one album as Cosmic Storm, and in hindsight, I kind of like that album now. You know, in fact, I always like albums years later. I. Because I guess I'm recording the albums and engineering and doing all that, I get to hear the songs so many times that by the time the album's out, I'm sick of it, you know, whereas the yeah. others, because when you're mixing down music, for those of you that get involved in audio engineering, you know, you, 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 you might hear a song 30, 40 times till you get it right, you know, and going over yeah. bits and pieces, getting the mix right and and. Uh, quite seriously, I would not listen to our own music. I could not play our records 
or CDs after I'd finished with them. I just yeah. just leave them alone. But, you know, after time passed, no worries. I could actually sit back and enjoy some of the music. So, uh, so that's Cosmic Storm. And nice. uh, that, that sort of went for about five or six years and still is really together now. We, we do do the odd show from time to time. And Cosmic Storm is myself on drums, uh, Kevin Perks on bass, Steve Gregory, who's uh, the guitarist in the Satellites, people might know him, uh, on guitar, and uh, Lily or Judy Higgins on um, vocals. Kevin does vocals too. So yes. that's the Cosmic Storm. And then from there we went to Lily and the Drum. As I said, I've always been interested in in the music and I've always listened to all instruments as well as the drums. And 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 was, I was just as interested to know how a guitar part went and why it went there and why they did that as I was a drum roll or drum part. And um, that might have led to the fact that eventually I got right interested in sound engineering and what have you and actually and into songwriting and actually writing, producing and engineering music. So really, yeah, I wasn't just into the drums, but I was into the drums heavily. My approach to drumming, well, actually, my sort of thoughts on how drumming should be, and that's just my opinion, by the way, uh, is that it's got to be a fine balance between the the technician or the the adventurous expert, you know, experimentation of, of creativity, and, and by that I mean like there's the technical aspect of drumming, there's the disciplined aspect of drumming, in other words, strict timekeeping, which is required of drummers, and 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 most drummers focus on that, but. I also loved the reckless abandon approach. In other words, just taking chances on the drum kit, which is, and like I said earlier, I'm easily distracted. I get bored. Uh, well, I don't get bored, but I, I like to keep always finding new things. Like Lily hates the fact that we write a song and then I want to I wanna try it five different ways and, and then then I want to sort of do another thing and, you know, she sort of gets a bit frustrated. But I'm always looking for something new and different. And mm. um, and I've always had that approach on the drums and 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 I've always had uh, the approach of taking chances on the drum kit, which is good and bad, by the way, and it's easier said than done because um, it's pretty easy to cause a train wreck. And I've, <laughs> I've been uh, guilty of doing that a couple of times with with my band. Uh, in other words, you lose it, you know, and the band stumbles because, mm. you know, I took a chance that perhaps I shouldn't have taken. But, um, look, one thing I'll say about the beauty of being with an outfit like Iron Horse is when you play together, and, look, we used to every day, to us Iron Horse was a job, every day, unless you had a good reason, you came to rehearsals. At 10am, you were at the Iron Horse rehearsal room, which is usually at my place because as a drummer, I didn't like shifting my drum kit around. So I always made sure I had a place that we had a big enough room to rehearse in. And I had all the recording mm. gear as well. So we we would play and talk a lot 
But we would basically be there for six, seven hours, eight hours, sometimes 12 hours in that room. And the beauty about being in an outfit like that, being in an actual band as a band member, as opposed to, say, being a fill-in drummer, I would actually hate to be a fill-in drummer, to be honest, that that's all you did, playing with different people, because you miss out on that camaraderie and chemistry that can only happen when a bunch of people play with each other for long periods of time. Yeah. What happened out of that was that I could take the guys on a journey just just like that. In an instant, we could be doing something and then I could take them somewhere on the drum kit and they could follow me. And, look, we, a lot of people, and this is no word of a lie, with the Iron Horse shows, we would just start jamming. There'd be a 1,000 people in the audience and most people would be concentrating on <laughs> making sure that they played that song the way it's supposed to go. Mm. And... But, and we did, but on more than uh, one occasion and probably more times than we should have, we'd actually just start off on a jam. And, uh, you know, I, I was always pretty keen to jump in and lead them off somewhere. And it could be in the middle of a song, during the song, or at the end of a song, and even intros. I would totally change. If it was a drum part intro, I would change it and extend it. And you try and do that with an outfit that you're going to fill in and, man, you're not going to get another gig with them. But with Iron yeah. everyone knew. We just knew each other. And don't ask me how we knew each other, where we were going to go, what the next bit was going to be, how come we ended up doing that all totally in, together and simultaneously. And a lot of times I'd have some music friends come up, oh, man, I really love the way you arranged that song tonight you know that was fantastic and I'd go yeah well you know what we just jammed that tonight we didn't arrange that yeah. all, you know and uh, I guess because I was I was also inspired by the likes of the Allman Brothers I loved that band uh, as a youngster and um and people like Hendrix and uh Cream and that and live these guys they used to just get into it there was no rules and boundaries and so I was always inspired by that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is on the drum kit, don't be too safe, but you've got to find that balance between, you know, and it depends what your role is. If you're a, a fill-in session drummer, well, unfortunately, you probably do have to be pretty safe. But yeah. the beauty about playing in a, a band for a long time. But, you know, some of the drummers that come to mind are the adventurous drummers, the people like Keith Moon, obviously, who's probably a little too adventurous, uh, Ginger Baker live, John Bonham, you know, he, he took a lot of chances live, changed things. Um, a really underrated drummer that I couldn't believe that a lot of people didn't even know who he was was Johnny Densmore from The Doors. He was, yeah. To me, he was just a brilliant drummer. A lot of people didn't even rate him, but he just really had the thing. And then Butch Trucks, he was another great drummer from the Allman Brothers. There was also Jamie in the Allman Brothers, but Jamie always tended to Play a bit of a safer line. Butch took the lead and um, mm. in the drumming. And Gene Krupa was a brilliant, adventurous drummer. Um, and um, whereas Sayim Pace, on the other hand, was he's actually quite a controlled, strict, you know, pretty much a safe drummer. He always played the songs pretty much the same way. Uh, mm. And because uh, I did study a bit of his drumming. 
So, um, yeah, so that's the difference. And um, and I think if you're a drummer, if you can get to jam with people on a regular basis, that's the best way, and that's where you take your chances. Who are your top three local drummers? Uh, local drummers? Yeah. Well, that's a really tough one because there's more than that. But, look. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to... See, I can't really say Dale Cox because nobody even knows who he is, right? So I'm going to perhaps mention some names that might be known. But um, does anybody know Peter Gore out there? You know, Peter Gore is actually running, I think, the drum, Adelaide Drum Academy now. I think mm, Adelaide, mm. Drum school, that's what he's calling himself. Peter Gore, to me, he's a brilliant drummer. And what, what I liked about him was that he, he, was, a char- he was a risk taker. And, and I loved his style. He um, he might not be classified as a great drummer by other drummers in Adelaide. I don't know. I don't really know um, what people think of Peter Gore. But uh, I've always had the utmost respect for his drumming and thought he was he was a great drummer. Um, look, obviously, people like Mario Marino. You know, he's a he's a, he's a great drummer too. You know, and he takes yeah. chances. You know, he's a risk taker. And another guy that I didn't know much about um, that uh, I've only just really got to really appreciate is uh, Kelvin from the Kings and Associates. He's a risk taker. I love his drumming. Yeah, Kel- uh, yeah, Sugars, yeah. Yeah, so I like the way he drums. Mm-hmm. And to me, by the way, I don't necessarily pick the technical drummer, the guy that can you know, do, you know, fantastic technical stuff and it's a real strict timekeeper. I'm not even interested in strict timekeeping. Personally, I think that's one of the biggest chains you can throw around a band because what we learnt, and some people disagree with this, right, but um, it's funny because I've got a mate that's a real disciplined style of musician, has been for a long time, and I'm not going to mention his name, and he always was right into strict and didn't like it if I moved a bit, you know, on the drums in terms of tempo and stuff. But over the years he's come to recognise why some music sounds more exciting than others and why some music just has a bit of a, a thing going for it and some music just sounds a little bit, yeah, yeah. And it's because everything was just too strict, too stiff, too... Mm. Um, Regimentary, whereas a little bit of a movement is fine because that's how you get your excitement and then go up and down either way, depending on the song. So, yeah, if I'm not yelling out all the um, the great technicians out there, I apologise for that. But I'm going to run, you know, at the moment, my three drummers that are probably known would be Peter Gore, Mario, Marino, and I'm going to throw Kelvin. I forget Kelvin's yep. name. I apologise that. Kelvin from Kings and Sugars. Sugar, sugar. What is it? Sugars. Oh, Sugars. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. So, but look, you know, Mick Garcia, oh, look, there's heaps of them. There's yeah, there are. There are. It's a really tough question. Yeah. Right. <laughs> blessed with, a, with heaps of great drummers. And musicians, by the way. 
We we punch yeah, one so above I don't think five. people realise how many fabulous musicians we actually have here. Yeah. Mm. Well, it, I think it comes from the fact that competition's very hard here and, and you've got to have a certain level of ability to even get a look in the door. So, hmm. Mm. Yeah. John, if you could invite any musician to play a concert anywhere in the world, mm. With you on the kit, Ooh. who would you call? Where would it be held? And what style of music would you be performing? Yeah, that's a tough one. Okay, can I have two, please? Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, look, from a drumming point of view and musical, I'm going to go with. Derek Trucks, the, the Trucks Tedeschi band. I've been a big yep. fan of them for many, many, many years and I love their style of music, which I guess is a combination of jazz, big band, rock and blues. Mm. They're, they're really reasonably broad spectrum. Um, and so I'd love to fill in on the drum kit there. Am I capable of doing it? Probably not. You know, I'm probably <laughs> good enough to do it. But, you know, I've, I've sort of learned a couple of their tunes the best I could. Um, so I'd love to do that. I'd love to be capable of doing that. Uh, and where would it be held? I don't really have a real preference for that. I'd be happy for it to be held in the US or I'd be equally happy for it to be held right here in the northern suburbs somewhere on a nice big island. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think that the trucks band, the Tedeschi trucks band, would have enough followers by now that they could uh, get a couple of thousand people at a gig in South Australia. They're quite unknown. I, I've actually met all those guys. In fact, uh, Kofi Burbridge from Derek Trucks Band played on the Cosmic Storm album, and okay. unfortunately, he's passed away, which is quite sad. Mm. We lost him um, about a year or so ago. Now, so that's the Derek Trucks band. The second person, and I'd, you know, I'd be a real heel if I never, ever, because I've always wanted to drum for Bob Dylan, and um, I'd just love to drum to Bob's songs and yeah. enjoy that as musical satisfaction as well as uh, drumming satisfaction, because some of his drum parts are quite interesting. In fact, one of his drummers. Howard Scythe was a brilliant drummer, had an uncanny style, and he was on the Desire album, which is about mid-70s. But uh, Bob also used Jim Keltner a lot, who's a very good drummer, and most drummers would know of Jim Keltner. Mm. But Bob, I'd be happy to play anywhere, really, but, yeah, it'd be good to do it in Australia and in the northern suburbs too. Let Bob play to the northern suburbs crowd. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, and um, actually, can I just mention my drum kit? Because I love sure. my drum kit, and it's quite a rare drum kit. Not very many of them in this country. And uh, it's a Camco, but a genuine LA series Camco. Uh, it's about a 74 era. And uh, I've actually got two of them. I, was, I don't know how I was lucky enough to come across two of them, but both John Reynolds got in for me. Um, I believe there's probably about a half a dozen or so of these kits in Australia. Uh, most of them are interstate, 
I'd love to know if anyone in Adelaide's got a real Kamco, not the uh, Tama version, because Tama bought the name and uh, brought out an entry-level version. And, um, yeah, so that's the drum kit I play and absolutely love it. As much as over the years I've wanted to buy a brand-new flashy drum kit, um, I just couldn't. I'd say, well, what for? I, I just love playing my Kamco's. And Kamco, by the way, um, was ended up being bought because they like most good fa- uh, products go broke because they concentrate on quality and uh, not price. And um, they were bought or they were taken over by uh, Joe Lombardo DW, so Drummer's Workshop DW. So now you'll see DW kits out there. And uh, certainly the early DW kits all used uh, Camco. Shells. They definitely all now use the Camco lugs, which are very unique. They're a round lug and very distinct, different from any other brand. Um, so that's the drum kit I play. So now, Lily and the drum. Okay, very quickly, because I realise we're running out of time here. Um, Lily and the drum started a little bit by accident in the sense that Lily and I were writing some tunes for Cosmic Storm. And uh, we had tunes there that weren't really going to suit Cosmic Storm because it was a harder-edged outfit and we'd written some sort of bluesy, cruisy tunes and um, and they seemed to work really well with just the drums and guitar, which is what Lily and I were using to write with. Mm. And anyhow, um, we decided to uh, have a go as a bit of a duo and we... It was actually, I won't go into, I mean, we, we came up with a name. I won't go into that. Um, you'll have to come to one of our shows because I often tell the story of how that came about. But um, we got offered, oh, I bumped into the manager of the Promethean at the time who was running a singer-songwriters night at the Promethean and he needed a, an act to fill a spot. So I dobbed Lily and myself in and we went there as Lily and the drum. We played six mm. original tunes just on drums and guitar and it worked really well. And um, we got offered another gig, another one, blah, 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 and uh, next minute we were playing in, in uh, Victoria, actually. It was our first couple of interstate gigs. And then we got more gigs over there, more gigs, and then into New South Wales. And and then within a couple of years, we were actually touring pretty much the whole of South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, and then started to move into Queensland. And... Um, and what I love about Lily and the Drummers is it's just its real stripped-down simplicity of the music. It's just, you know, it's very open. I have to work a bit harder as a drummer in that. I have to take the role of a bass guitar at times and and just sort of fill the bits without overdoing it. So the challenge there is to be exciting and fill but not overplay and, and um, that sort of stuff. So... I'm not going to say I get it right all the time. Uh, I'd be a liar, but I really enjoy it. I love it. In fact, I love it that much that I don't really care if I ever play in another band again. I'm just mm. that happy with the um, the format that uh, we've got going with Lily and the Drum and, and my role yeah. as a drummer in that. Released four albums and all four have made the top 25 Australian Blues and Roots charts. And that's what helped us open a lot of doors in state. In fact, all of our albums charted in the Adelaide 3D chart. So we've had fantastic support from South Australian community radio stations as well as radio stations all over Australia have, have really been supportive of Lily and the Drum. 
Um, we were we we didn't even expect to chart anywhere, to be quite honestly. Um, yeah. We didn't, try, we didn't even know we were on the Blues and Roots charts, and we found out six months after the effect after the uh, event. Sorry. Um, and we just did a bit of an AMRAP mail out and people started playing us. So that was a real bonus and uh, it's kind of chuffed us. And um, But it certainly really inspired us to keep going and we, we, we figured, well, someone likes us, so we'll keep going. And oh, well, lots of great people like you, yes. <laughs> but, That's um, great. I, I love it. Yeah, look, one thing that we did do, those linear drum, and we've got to turn that around a bit, is we really neglected the Adelaide market, the South Australian market a bit because we're so busy playing in-state. Um, and then COVID brought all that to a halt last year. Uh, I think we played about six shows and cancelled well over 50 shows. Um, yeah, because you had the tour all lined up. Yeah, we had a number of tours. But we even tried to go out again in January this year like we were supposed to Tamworth. The main festival in Tamworth was cancelled, but they put on a mini festival and asked us, to do four shows there. So we booked a number of shows on the way up and then we also booked a whole pile of shows on the coast coming back down into Victoria on the way back. And then, of course, um, New South Wales got the, the their lockdown in Christmas and still going into January and we were faced. We could have gone except that a few of the shows we had to cancel because they were in the, in the red zone and... Um, but we would have had to quarantine for two weeks and we just couldn't do that. And a lot of artists pulled out of Tamworth because they were from the red zones. So it all fell over and we thought, you know what, um, we're not even going to try going anywhere until the end of the year. we we'll just wait and see what happens, see if this vaccine changes things around or not. Um, mm. So we're going to, well, yeah, look at doing a few more Adelaide gigs. But, you know, once again... You know, we play original music. It's, you know, yeah, you can get the gigs out there. There's there's gigs there, but uh, they're not, you know, they're not as lucrative, unfortunately, as we would like them to be. And yeah. um, consequently, I've had, because of all the cancellations and that, like I've been doing music professionally for a long, long time uh, and Lily, but I've had to uh, work. So I'm working, you know, to earn a dollar. I've got no choice. Wow. Mm. So, um, well, you have to live, don't you? Yeah. Well, you certainly do. So, yeah. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm actually kind of enjoying having money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, what are you doing for a job at the moment, John? Well, you know, my background is uh, building design and architecture. And right. uh, I'm lucky enough that uh, I had a, a number of clients and that I could ring and say, look, if you got any work, I'm available and, uh, you know, it wasn't long before I was inundated. I've got more work than I can actually cope with right now. So that's a good thing. But I want to sort of rein it all back in towards the middle of the year because we want to get back into music, you know. I sort of went through life setting myself up for the moment that became Lily and the Drum. I didn't know it was going to be Lily and the Drum. If someone had said to me, you're going to be in a duo, get a guitar and drums, playing all around Australia, I told them they were dreaming. <laughs> but I was setting myself up to play music professionally again. I did it for about nine, ten years with Iron Horse. It was actually longer than that. It was about 11 years, uh, 11 years, yeah. 
And so I, um, I sort of set myself up to work as a contractor and basically be self-employed so that one day I could go back to playing music professionally again. And that day did come about eight years ago, nine years ago now. Mm. And, but then all came to a grinding halt last year. Thank you very much, COVID. But it, yeah. so, um, it was a great, it's actually quite important time too because uh, Lily and I were able to uh, revalue a lot of things, a lot of things that when you get caught up in the whirlwind of touring and playing so many, we were doing 100 shows, over 100 shows a year, but travelling some really serious distances because we wanted to play all over the place not just in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and Adelaide. We wanted to play everywhere. You know, we really wanted to get out and about, and we did. And um, But when you're in that whirlwind, you leave a lot of your life behind. You, you miss out and lose a lot of things that you don't realise until all of a sudden something forces you to stop, and that's what happened last year. And yeah. um, we've discovered a lot of things. So that's that was a blessing in disguise. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? Hopefully not in the nursing home. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, oh, look, Lily and I really want to, we just, you know, we want to keep playing for as long as we can, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not spring chickens, I'm going to admit it. I, I'm not. Um, but uh, I've still got heaps of energy and, you know, we try to keep fit. So we'd like to think that, We'll still be playing and doing our thing. It has become, look, I've got to say, it has become increasingly harder to get your your original music out there and survive to justify it. By that I mean, see, what we would do is we would record an album and we would press, you know, say two or 3,000 CDs and because we travelled and toured and that, we could peddle those CDs and, and sell them at our gigs. And it was really, really, we did really well out of merchandising. And then we, we moved on to both CDs and we got some really nice, classy-looking MP3 cards, which were also very popular on the road. And um, mm. But it's what we noticed just before COVID hit, that there was a big drop-off because since Spotify, everyone's now latched on to Spotify. Our fans are even saying it, and they don't, they don't understand, and they don't mean any harm, but they're saying, oh, yeah, no, look, we're, we're getting your music off of Spotify. And, you know, you used to get told that at a gig and so you can't really go into the story about, well, that's all well and good and thank you very much, but we get nothing out of that. Um, yeah. You do, you get point oh, 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 something of a cent. Yeah, it's and, ridiculous. Uh, and I think, you know, when our royalty statements come in, you know, there's like $7 from a gazillion plays, you know, that sort of thing. Well, not a gazillion, but, you know, a thousand plays or whatever. And, you, you know, you're just not making any money. And so we've noticed that the sales of hard, of hard copies have dropped off. So we're wondering, you know, how feasible it's actually going to be for us to do physical copies anymore in the future or whether we just do everything digitally and really keep our costs down. I don't know. I think you should be keeping your hard no, copies and only releasing, say, a single or some or two onto Spotify. And if people want to hear the rest, they have to come to you to purchase the the album. Yeah, that's probably yeah. what we're going to have to do. So we made the mistake. Actually, our first album's not available at all on Spotify. 
we made the mistake of the other three. We just released the whole lot to them and probably shouldn't have. But anyway. Yeah, I don't think people should be doing that. Yeah. I think they should be limiting what they're putting on there. Obviously, you've got to put stuff on there because yeah. you, you need to, you know, yeah. find your fans and what have you. Yeah. But, you know, then they've got a taste and then if they want more, well, then they've got to come to your site and buy your albums, you know. Yeah. The, the other thing that we're finding as the – look, you know, we've got to face facts and – and say that, you know, look, we do get younger people at our gigs, but predominantly our music tends to appeal to the the 40s and upwards uh, people with demographics. And, you know, we're noticing that more and more people, and it's also evident by the amount of concept and cover bands that are out there, more and more people are just sort of interested in covers. They're just, you know, they're not as adventurous uh, as, you know, they used to be in purchasing original music or even listening to it for that matter, you know. Mm. We are noticing that. And it's not just at our shows. We go, we do go get around to see as many shows as we can when we're not playing. And we're noticing that, you know, people are just really latching onto the covers and not really supporting the originals as much as even a year ago. And, you know, the fact that a lot of musicians are playing in concept and cover bands now, which mm. do very well, is telling you the story. And, um, you know, Lily and I are sort of asking the question, you know, is, there, is there actually anyone going to be interested in what we're doing in another two years? Or have, <laughs> you know, we just run run out of, you know, it's just the interest is not there. Um, I know musicians will always, like, like you know, us as musicians, we're always interested in new music. I, I go searching for it. I don't listen to commercial radio at all. I, I tune into as many small radio stations. I'm always looking for a new CD to buy, and I still buy CDs, by the way. I don't buy any digital anything. I need to have the physical product. And Yeah, I prefer to own the physical yeah, product myself as well. Yeah. yeah. So Lily and I are always on the hunt for new music whether it's from artists that we know or artists that we don't know. So we've got a fairly broad collection of artists here that I'd guarantee you that a lot of people in South Australia wouldn't probably even know about. But, um, you know, I'm wondering how many of us are left out there. I know there is still enough out there, but it seems like it's a dying audience and um, the, the venturous music lover, the person that's prepared to just take a chance and hear something they've never heard before. You just go, oh, I kind of yeah. like that, you know. We just listened to some new stuff today um, from artists I've never heard of, Australian artists, and they're bloody good songs, really good songs. And, you know, I didn't have to hear them ten times before I thought, oh, that's a good song, which is how radio, commercial radio works. Um, yeah. I just heard the first eight, ten, twelve bars and, they wrote, wrote me in and I thought, wow, that's sounding cool. And then, yeah, loved the song straight up. So, um, yeah. yeah, anyhow, but we hope to still be doing it. We're going to be peddling our music, folks, so watch out. If you come to see it, <laughs> you're going to hear it. <laughs> but we do enjoy playing a couple. We do throw covers into our sets, obviously. We've got a lot of great artists that we, we just have to play their music. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, there's nothing wrong with doing covers. Um, I think no. as long as you're, you know, you're making it your own, 
Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. as a two-piece, you have to totally rearrange it because yeah. you're not going to be able to do it like the original. Um, but we try to, you know, try to uh, give the song its credibility in the sense of maintaining the basic guts of it, but then we approach it in our little style. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you do. You do a great job. I love you guys. I think you're wonderful. Thank you very much. <laughs> Can you just get another thousand people to do that for us? <laughs> we'll try. Okay, we'll try. <laughs> now we're just going to work a little <laughs> bit harder. Lily in the drum, guys. You've got to go and see Lily in the drum. Okay, I thoroughly recommend you go and see see this band. I guess we're going to get out there and do some gigs, don't we? That's the the trick. Because as I said, we haven't neglected. We don't seem to play as much as we should in Adelaide. Um, and now that we're not going to do the interstate travelling, I think it's a good opportunity to get out there and do it. I think it is too. So I'm looking forward to um, seeing that you've got a lot more gigs coming up. Yeah. Before we end our chat today, I'm going to ask John 20 quick random questions or as many as we can get through in the space of two minutes to close the interview. Are you ready, John? Yes. Your time starts now. What was the first concert that you went to? Uh, the Doobie Brothers. Name of the character married to Herman in the TV series The Munsters. Oh, oh I should know Who that. was his wife? Oh, Lily. Sorry. Lily? Is it? Lily? Yes. <laughs> Name the first album that you purchased. Um, look, I'm going to say Bob Dylan, but it probably wasn't. Okay. Who released Pictures of Lily in 1967? Keith Main, drum kit. Oh, oh, sorry, The Who, and his drum kit was called uh, Lily. Oh. <laughs> Which do you prefer, vinyl or CDs? Uh, CD, because vinyl. Name a band you wish you'd seen play live. That I wished and haven't been able to see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cream. The most sticks that you've dropped during a gig. I'm I'm good at that. Uh, probably four because I don't grip my sticks. I, they're always floating in my hands and they fly out. Name your favourite song from the sixties. Um, like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. What was the first single that you purchased? Yeah, I should know this one. ACDC's Can I Sit Next to You, Girl. What CD do you play the most on a long drive? Ooh. Um, Allman Brothers. Name a famous drummer that you'd like to meet. I'll tell you what, I'm going to go with Jim Keltner. What was the last concert that you went to? Uh, Jackson Brown. <laughs> <laughs> and the time's up. The time has just gone off. Okay, yeah. thank you once again, John, for joining me for the Banded About podcast today. You've been great to chat to, and I hope that everyone who listens finds this as enjoyable as I did. All of the information and links relating to today's interview can be found in the description field. And please feel free to message me if you have any ideas or requests for future Banded About podcast guests. And make sure you, that you subscribe, follow, rate, comment, or even leave a voice message for your favourite 
episode to help this series to reach more people who enjoy music interview podcasts. Thank you again, John. You've been great. Thank you very much, Di. Good on you. All the best. That's it from me, Di, banded about, proudly supporting live music. Your wells run dry, so you'll sink or sail when I say.